0: From 744 Ostrom Avenue, I'm Guy Phobes, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, Surviving Parkland, how Sarah Chadwick is taking on tragedy while balancing life as a Syracuse student, Bayheim and Bova: an excerpt from our special episode where one of our Opinions columnists discusses paying student-athletes with SU's head basketball coach, and Classroom Collab, three SU professors team up on a folk album dropping tomorrow. It's Tuesday, October 15th, 2019.
1: Sarah Chadwick stood outside the Alabama State House on August 1st, 2018. She was shouting at a senator through a microphone and she said senators never want to talk to her um, when she's protesting. As the rain poured down on her, her mascara was running down her face, her hair was becoming frizzy from the Alabama heat, and her posters falling apart, she was yelling through a microphone. It was also her 17th birthday.
0: Diana Riojas leads the pulp team.
1: Chadwick was a junior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas when 17 students and faculty were killed in a mass shooting in February 2018. After the March for Our Lives, she spent the summer driving across Florida and neighboring states for the Road to Change tour, and the state house in Montgomery was one of those stops. So Diana, Sarah
0: Chadwick graduated from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School earlier this year and is now a Syracuse student. Did you get a sense of why she chose to come here?
1: One of the main reasons why she went to Syracuse University and not a state school like University of Florida or University of Central Florida was because Syracuse University had the citizenship and civic engagement major, and she also really wanted a feel for a small school setting, but still had that big sense of like school pride. And then also the people who were around her at the time, her friends and family who also went to Syracuse University, really encouraged her to go here.
0: She continues to advocate for action on on gun violence here at Syracuse, but it looks like she also wanted to pursue other forms of activism as well.
1: Right now, she just started the Students Demand Action at SU, it's a local chapter towards ending gun violence. But she's also really motivated into helping organizations like Planned Parenthood, which she's already volunteering for. And she's also really interested in getting into like the climate change scenes So right now she just really wants to pursue other activisms and then also like finding herself at SU because as you can imagine, she had to like grow up and mature a lot faster than any other student, any other high school student really needed to. So I think right now she just wants to find herself, find her independence, find her group of friends, and that's important, too.
0: She described entering activism as a a real change in her personality. Um, She was originally pretty shy, but now it's different. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, she told me before she was on Twitter and, like, voicing her opinion. uh, She was a very shy girl. She didn't say much. She didn't go off on Twitter as she normally would, but then after the tragedy, she just felt a lot of, I guess, anger, and she really wanted to voice her opinion. And, I mean, she lost her community in in some ways. So definitely she went to Twitter and she tweeted to Marco Rubio and she tweeted about how the fact that, like, he's accepting money from the NRA. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the highest profile events that she did was – going on stage and speaking at the March for Our Lives DC protest where she spoke to millions of people and then obviously that speech got was seen by millions more on TV or nationally so I remember she was telling me that she was so nervous about speaking at the march that she didn't sleep at all that night before and then she just was so nervous that she took a shower in the at three o'clock in the morning, and that's where she planned and thought the majority of her speech. So you can this here,
2: a dollar and five cents. When you take three million one hundred and forty thousand one hundred and sixty-seven, the number of students enrolled in Florida schools, and divide it by three million, three hundred and three thousand three hundred and fifty-five. The amount of money Marco Rubio has received from the National Rifle Association. It comes out to a dollar and five cents. Is that all we're worth to these politicians? A dollar and five cents? Was seventeen dollars and eighty-five cents all it cost you that day, Mr. Rubio? I say one life is worth more than all the guns in America?
1: Um, At the speech, she was ready to go, but it was very much an in-the-moment kind of approach.
0: A worthy reminder in your piece is that Sarah and the other students at Parkland returned to school, not only grieving the loss of their friends, but they were building a national organization in creating March for Our Lives. How did it affect her remaining time in high school?
1: Given her activism and all the travel opportunities she got to do because she was a voice and she was a face of the organization, it was pretty hard for her to like balance school and then those responsibilities, especially junior year. She was missing a lot of schools. She told me at weeks at a time she just would not be there and she would have to do her homework um, and catch up. But then when she was there, she had to handle the fact that 900 students had to be relocated from where the shooting, like the majority of the shooting occurred to other sections in the schools. So teachers were sharing classrooms. And then on top of that, because of Hurricane Irma uh, earlier in the school year and then the time lost from the shooting, people were just catching up on all the things they missed and like prepping for the final exams. All of those combined just brought a real stressful environment. And to no fault of any teacher, she said, it was just like, there is no plan for what what you do academic wise for
0: what life is like after a mass shooting.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So all of those combined, you kind of have to think on top of your head.
0: That is sort of a worthy reminder in that while the media may leave, there is still a, a lingering effect of having a crisis like this. Did she describe any lingering worries about the threat of gun violence?
1: Obviously, when you go through something like that, and there hasn't been any change in policy nationally or anything that can really prevent something like this to happen, you're going to have these worries. During the summer, this past summer, she talked about how some of her friends went to University of uh, Central Florida, and the UCF police sent out a very vague message saying someone potentially may have a gun on campus or in a dorm and it turned out to be just a bb gun but i guess for her she was so worried that her friends had to deal with that again the people who went to douglas and had to deal with the mass shooting and then having that vague message it reminded her it reminded her that like these threats are still real and people still have to go through them it's a very common concern that people go through But she hopes because of right now with the 2020 election, these debates are going on and gun violence is still a hot topic that these politicians are talking about, that that leads to change along with the change she's already contributed to.
0: Lastly, Diana, how did you find Sarah's story? What made you come across it?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm actually originally from Coral Springs, Florida, which is a city right next to Parkland. But I was home for the summer and some friend of mine tweeted something from Chadwick and on her Twitter profile it said she was SU bound or something and she was also from Douglas and she was also a co-founder for March for Our Lives. so I realized two and two that she was a co-founder and she was going to Syracuse University so I really wanted to get her voice and I really wanted to know why someone like her who can really just continue on this like road to activism and could honestly ditch school why would you come here and like the main reason why was for an education for it to have that college experience which i can totally agree with
0: diana rio is the feature editor you can find her front page story parkland shooting survivor sarah chadwick balances activism student life on the daily orange website thank you diana
1: thank you
3: prior to the interview i was of the mindset that There's absolutely no reason why college athletes should not be compensated. I grew up an athlete myself, and I know the hard work and dedication and sacrifice that it takes, especially to make it to that stage. And I thought that it was ridiculous that they weren't being paid. Sam Bova is an opinion columnist with The Daily Orange. But then, now, I'm sort of of the mindset that It's just more complicated of an issue, and it's multifaceted. For your first-ever column, you wanted to
0: focus on an issue that has long been around but has recently taken on new legislative traction in New York and California. That is, of course, the issue of paying student-athletes and allowing them to sell the rights to their own names and media. In major props, you landed an interview with Jim Boeheim, a fixture of college sports, and the head coach for SU's men's basketball team. So when you walked into that conversation, did it seem as if he understood the perspective that you were coming in with?
3: Yes. Well I, I explained my perspective in the email and then so he knew like as I was sitting down what I was gonna ask him, like even before I said anything. So he, he actually started the interview is kinda of funny by just saying, like, here, let me let me just teach you something really quickly.
0: And and what and what were those things? So in your piece, I, I think that the issue of equity comes up Pretty early on.
3: From, the, from a coaching perspective, his, his main point was about the equity of it from school to school, from player to player, from sport to sport.
4: I was with Charles Barkley the other night and he made a great point. If you're at Alabama and you'll get money, you do a commercial or something. So who's going to get the commercial? Quarterback, yeah. point, guard, yeah, point guard, safe, uh, running back. Maybe they get a $50,000 commercial just throwing that out there. Mm. What's the tackle say? What's the guard say on the football team? Where's my money? Where's my money? I think they're going to do that. It has unintended consequences.
3: That, like, who's going to decide who gets what, and where's that going to come from? If that was the case, then our other programs, it might be more difficult to keep them afloat.
4: We breaking. We we. You have to understand. Our budget is a couple million dollars, and women's basketball is two million dollars. Same. We have thirteen scholarships. We have for they have fifteen. So all that money, where does it come from? They don't make any money. So that comes from us. Lacrosse, soccer, women's field hockey. We fund all those. If you just had basketball and football as your only two sports, you could say, okay, yeah, there's extra money here. We're making money. Let's give it back. It's not like that. But that's what everybody says. They say, you're making this money, but it isn't. There is no profit.
0: Did he make any point about how much we are already giving athletes and maybe not direct compensation, but just in ways that he thinks that people may, may misconstrue the idea of what we actually give athletes already?
4: What people don't know let me ask you, how much does a basketball player get at Syracuse right now? What does he get? What's well, his
3: it's scholarship? a scholarship. All right, 74000
4: That's in the neighborhood. That's what you think, right? Yes. And that's so what think. everybody thinks. Well, it's not. Every one of our players, because we can feed them breakfast, they can go over to the snack area there and get a salad and wrap during the day. Then we feed them after practice. Every one of our players takes his board in cash, and it's cost of attendance. How much do you think that is?
3: Probably another...
4: Ten, $1,400 ten a month. Wow. So you're a scholarship basketball player, because I, mean, I was aware of it, but until my son actually got it, I said, that much? Yeah. You get a check for $1,400 each month. Now, you have to buy your food out of that. But we give you two or three meals a day. Yeah. So, now... If you're a need student, who I worry about more, you get a Pell Grant for five thousand. So now, if you're a need student, you get two thousand dollars a month plus your tuition.
3: For, was that is there a specific place that that's supposed to go? two
4: thousand in your pocket, just for whatever you want. For whatever you want, and unfortunately, we have to train our <laughs> too many times. They go out and buy the video games and sneakers, you know. But but they. My point, the only point is, is that. Student-athletes are getting a lot more now. It used to be when I was in school, you got a scholarship, you ate in the dorms, and if you were late, you didn't get to eat in the dorms. And so you didn't. if you didn't, you had to pay your own food. So now we feed them and they get money. So it's a lot better now, and we're trying to improve that as much as we can. That's what we're pushing for.
0: I want to make sure I'm getting this right. Is Beheim trying to say that many of these athletes are already receiving a lot on top of their scholarships and that those things, be they food or the room and board money, are a luxury that only major athletic programs can provide?
3: Well, right. So he thinks that, you know, there's only like 10 or so schools that actually, you know, have a, generate a significant profit, with their football and basketball programs. So, most of the schools in the country aren't going to be making very much money with their sports. So, it's like where is how are they going to be paying their student athletes the same amount like for equity as the bigger schools when they're not making as much money? And it's like should should they be paid based off of their hard work or based off of the the people who are watching or interested in their in what they're doing? Because you know, you could be from a smaller, less bankable sport and still work just as hard as someone from a from like basketball or football.
0: And did Beheim say anything about what he thought as
3: a potential solution to that? Well, the only thing that he brought up as a problem uh, was his own paycheck, which obviously he wasn't going to advocate that he receive a pay like cut. cut. Yeah. But he did say that you know he's paid quite a bit, and coaches in general are paid more than he thinks they necessarily deserve and he also mentioned that like in foot in the football programs a few years ago the top football coach would be paid like you know maybe close to a million but then because of that other schools from that are competing with them start paying their coaches more and then it keeps going in that same pattern as you're having this conversation with him what how are you thinking about it well when he said that specifically about his his paycheck and how that ties into capitalism and how that's, he said, that's just how it works, you know, in capitalism. I think, like, he said that if if you're good at something, then you get paid, but then the top players are good at what they're doing and they're not getting paid. So I think that sort of contradicted itself. And then another thing he brought up was that the athletes that aren't going to the pros...
4: There's 4,000 players in college basketball scholarship thirty nine hundred of them are happy as they're not they're not going to be pros they're getting a free scholarship right and the hundred that aren't can go ahead and play and they're going to make a lot of money some are going to make a lot of money so you do get the benefit but
3: for their physical health for one thing like that's got to take a toll and like when they're leaving after these four years of that in what shape are they even going to be compared to where they started and how quality of an education are they going to be receiving like how focused are they going to be on that with all the time that they're spending with their sports so it's just it's difficult
0: so then when, when you leave that conversation with him and you think about okay so how am i going to approach this column you come in there with your existing belief that there's no reason and maybe correct me if i'm wrong but there, there's no reason why we shouldn't be paying these athletes
3: yeah, so I think that there's no reason why college athletes wouldn't deserve to be paid. I don't think that's the dilemma. I think the, the dilemma is how to make that happen. And most people have different opinions on that. People have different opinions about... Because it, it really comes down to an economic argument, and that's one of the most difficult things to think about, if, like to grasp. is like, how do you create equity in, when money's involved?
0: Sam Bova is a liberal columnist in our opinion section. You can find his bi-weekly column on the Daily Orange website. Thank you so much, Sam.
3: Thank you.
5: And he went to the room. Everyone was out. He had his guitar laid out on the floor. All the desks were kind of like surrounded against the wall. And after that, he picked up his guitar and... Chris Gargolato was a contributing writer for Pulp and just when he played like the room just like captured all that sound and kind of like vibrated it.
0: Now Chris who was it that was
5: performing? Jeffrey Pepper Rogers he is he's a musician that um, is also a professor here he teaches in the arts. society he used to teach at Newhouse for magazine he teaches also creative writing and um, songwriting and he's been playing guitar since he was 12 and he also has uh, a band called the jeffrey pepper rogers band and they're kind of a folk driven band that grateful dead vibe which means that they kind of have multiple genres mixed into one so it's kind of like a big smoothie of a bunch of different genres and before the interview i listened to the entire album because he sent me a link and it was i I was mainly a folk album and i got that and then like all of a sudden like i remember one of the songs so he just like I hear like a saxophone solo coming out of nowhere. I'm like, yo, like, what is this? And it it was a very, this, like, you know, spontaneous album in a way that. He's mixing different genres into one, and I think that that's what he wants to make unique out of
0: it. Music is just such a basic part of who I am, I guess. It helps you uh, understand things in your life or in the world better. Uh, You know, what I do in the classroom at SU is just uh, an extension of. Of all that, the work that I did at acoustic guitar, what I've done as an author, I like like turning that light on for people so that they'd see like, well, music doesn't have to be just something that you know I get on the earbuds, but you know that I can make in some way. Just wondering there. How many albums has the Jeffrey Pepper Rogers band had?
5: Well, he's released five albums total. He didn't really give me a direct number of what exact albums he released as a band. It was kind of like, you know, like he had more people come onto the band time after time. He started off with a guy named Josh DeCaney. Um, they've been at a dinosaur barbecue event that happened like over 10 years ago, and uh, Justin DeCaney is a phenomenal drummer. He has background in Brazilian and jazz music. And so d- at one of these music nights, Rogers saw DeCaney and then they cu- they came a do after that. Rogers was on vocals and guitar and then DeCaney was just like strobing on the background on the drums. Rogers also had, you know, background with Foxy, another guy that lived near him, Jason Fridley. He's a biology professor, which I found pretty interesting. But uh, Fridley, he was the guy that was, you know, like on this section that came out of nowhere. And they met each other through actually. Rogers moved in next to him, and they met with each other. And like Rogers, like saw like really could play other instruments. Rogers started inviting him to gigs, and then well, yeah, After that, you know, they, he kind of you know just got featured left and right, and then kind of he officially joined. And then the last member is not really connected to Syracuse um, University. She's more connected to just kind of like the Syracuse community as a whole. Uh, her name is Wendy Ramsey. She uh, plays the flute and a bunch of other instruments. She's mainly a woodwind no, player. And she also does backup vocals. And she was mainly meant at, so Syracuse professors had this sort of you know, event where they would, every single like month, they would all move each other in like one, one person's house and they would just have jam sessions. And um, they've been through there. I'm, I'm guessing like Wendy Ramsey just like met them through mutual friends and she joined the band.
0: Now their album that is dropping tomorrow, Live and Listening, was recorded at one of their concerts. How did that come about and, and why did they make that decision to keep it as a, as a
5: live album? Rogers mainly told me that they had like an excellent uh, sound engineer there that night and he kind of felt like the vibes of, it was at um, 443 Social Club, and when he went in, they started playing, the sound engineer was recording, and he didn't really know what to expect coming out of it, and then he, when he got home, he listened to it, he's like, he's like oh, like this actually could be an album.
0: Chris Gargolato is a contributing writer for Pulp. You can find his piece, Three SU Professors Collaborated on a Live Folk-Driven Album on the Daily Orange website. And while you're on the article, be sure to check out the great video our assistant video editor, Casey Tissue, put together for the story.
5: Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: A special thank you to Diana and Chris for all of their reporting, to Sam Bova for his opinions, to Lizzie Kalma, our assistant producer, for all of her help this week, and Amy and Kevin for all of their help as always. You can catch new episodes of the Daily Orange podcast every Tuesday morning on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next Tuesday.